Hello, welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee. I'm joined by Ash Milton, Managing Editor of Palladium. Hey, guys. Um, I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Palladium Magazine. And we're going to talk today about an article we recently put out by Dylan Levi King. Well, we're going to start with that. We're going to move into other topics, of course. But Dylan put out this article called The Second Death of Zhao Yulu. And Zhao Yulu was this party member of the Chinese Communist Party who died with his boots on, so to speak, um, out managing solving problems in in the uh the rural assignment that he had yeah in the henan region in this case yeah and and he was xi jinping wrote a poem about him uh so this is sort of a brief introduction to the guy but the article was about actually the the decentralization and centralization waves that have happened in china's party system and how the theory has gone around that so it started with mao had some you know very early speculations on how to handle contradictions and 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 centralization and then came up with this idea of the two initiatives that you know there's the initiative of the party the central party but there's also the initiative of the uh the people directly on the ground who who represent the so-called mass line and it 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 almost has a very hayekian feel to the flavor or, or to the argument and, and um the yeah so we found that interesting and but but then dylan takes it to what's going on now in the chinese state and we see xi jinping re-centralizing everything under under the party state, we've, we've discussed that before. Um, both both their reasons and some of the some of the repercussions of that. But one of the interesting aspects that came up in this article was the way that they're using so-called fourth industrial revolution technologies to do this. So they're centralizing things by means of big data and uh, e-commerce derived sort of surveillance and control technologies so you 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 know you get these big companies uh baidu alibaba who they build these these big um internet empires that track people as customers and they build dossiers on people to try to you know predict who they are and 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 market to them and so on and you know we're obviously very familiar with all of this in the West. We've we in in many ways I think the West did this stuff first, um, and but they're using they're repurposing all that infrastructure for the purpose of political control and 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 not just political control in sort of a, a nefarious sense, but but also as as their primary lens into the population so you know obviously one of the things that the local party cadre system did was it gives them boots on the ground where they can talk to people and understand the local concerns and the bet with all this big data fourth industrial revolution hand waving is that they're going to be able to do that as effectively 
uh, at their computer terminals um, as they did on the ground using this big data. So if you have, for example, you know, an aggregate of, of, you know, a million people in some city, they all have their dossiers, their profiles in this big commercial slash political surveillance system. And you can do statistics on that. You figure out, okay, well, what are they struggling with? What do they need? What do they want? Um, and, and then you go and try to implement that, try to satisfy it. So this is kind of the, the Chinese uh, theory of democracy or the current Chinese theory of democracy right now is that it's not so much that you want people directly exercising agency as much as you want the government to have very good information, very good feedback about what people want and, and to act uh, to satisfy those things. So the, the, the trick with this, with all this sort of software surveillance and control stuff is that because it's based on e-commerce and because it's imported from, from, or at least a lot of the conceptual framework is imported from the West, you end up with something that's actually very individualistic. It's individualistic. And then it has these, these sort of corporate bureaucracies and, and, um, activists at the top managing the whole thing in a very centralized manner and you, you it's removed the role for these local party cadres like Yulu. those local roles where someone gets hands-on experience with personalized power and making personal judgment without the aid of um you know big data statistics and so on that was the environment that trained up the current chinese elite so, and and you can sort of see why you know you get you get people out there actually trying to do governance hands-on they do experiments they make it work they study what their colleagues are doing in other provinces they talk to the people they try to figure out what actually needs to be done creatively at a community level or at a company level or you know whatever whatever sort of level of organization they're working at and and so that that becomes this environment where you're training up dynamic elites with a lot of hands-on experience and by force of necessity right i I think that's an important part of this you if if you're out in a rural area somewhere you know maybe you're in the mountains maybe you're up uh, in forest regions you might be one of a small handful of party guys you know you've gotten your marching orders uh from beijing as it were and maybe you know occasionally you get letters or you get updates but you know th- there's probably been like five political cycles of purges by the time <laughs> right, anything right. gets so, to you so yeah you're you're in a way you're on your own <laughs> yeah you can't really rely on central leadership and uh the result is you have to have guys who you know it's not just that they can do stuff uh on their own but one of the traits they also had to have because they were trying to develop these local areas right is they they had to be able to listen to local like the the local people around them and you know one of the things that Zhao Yulu in his uh sort of popular memory is known for is that he was very good at at going out of his way going like above and beyond right for uh, a cadre to uh listen to the people around him and to kind of mobilize like the areas he was in were very, very backward areas. They had these constant natural disasters. 
They had desertification, you know, education had basically collapsed over the last generation. Um, the, you know, the, these areas were highly chaotic places and he was nonetheless able to figure out what people needed and, and organize and mobilize them. And he did, you know, these big tree planting campaigns to combat the, the, the deserts that had been forming in the region. Um, he, he was able to do this and he was able to do this without a lot of direction from the party center. And, and yeah, so the key thing there is like, you're applying you know, human creativity and ingenuity out on the fringes, out on the frontier, um, in the absence of established structure. So our next, our next print edition, it's coming out, I don't know, fairly soon this, this winter is on this problem of elite cultivation. And one of these is one of the points we make is that you actually need, uh, if, if you're cultivating elites, you need not just, you know, go to good school and, and get the good job and get the good education, read the right books and so on. I mean, not that they read the right books anymore, but, but you also need time spent out in the wild, so to speak. You need to be contending with your hands and, and your initiative, um, without a lot of direction you need to be contending against some just bare existence in a way you need to you need to be in contact with reality for part of your formative years and so this this was a source of that in the chinese system and trained a, a certain type of of leadership and what's interesting is that the digital governance trend is going to train a different type of leadership it's going to be much more abstracted it's going to be much more like, um, you know, guys, guys in the in the back room at at um, at these commerce companies trying to figure out how to like segment the population and surveil them more more effectively. And I mean, you know, it's not directly going to be selling them ads because presumably the the government initiative will come to have more weight in the thing, but but it will have an effect on the ontology and the manner by which you approach the thing and and their dream is really to abstract away a lot of these uh, the local initiative you know on fear of corruption right it's it's very obvious you know if you have a bunch of guys with local initiative they 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 can do whatever they want including line their own pockets and or go against the party right so um so that that can become a problem and and that's what they're reacting to um, but the alternative is like, oh, we're going to get the AI good enough. The AI is going to do it for us. The big data is going to do it for us. And I, th- you know, our, our opinion was that, that, that seems to be folly of some kind. There's this kind of like broad way that I think about this in terms of vitality and kind of, as you, you know, hinting at here, Wolf, uh, this, this sort of surveillance management, surveillance, individualism, uh, individualism, because perhaps for a more atomized society, um, it's interesting that obviously China is not the first one to think about some of this, oh, you know, how do we use digital technologies? How do we use stuff we learned in marketing and PR to now govern the population? You know, this started in the West. Uh, this is our, our cake which they're eating (laughs) yeah it it, like the whole propaganda thing that happened in the 20th century is built on the back of of the 
religious revival conversion, like mass sort of statistically guided conversion attempts happening in the late 19th century. And then it becomes propaganda and it becomes marketing. Yeah. And it becomes uh, digitized, you know, in, I mean, it is being digitized now, I guess. And, you know, the way that these things work now is we have, um, you know, large social media companies. Uh, we have this sort of informal collaborations between different technological sectors and the state um, and this kind of ongoing testing of, you know, how exactly do you do population management? How exactly do you do narrative control through these platforms? You know, it, the, the kind of overall machine still seems to be in, in early stages in a lot of ways. But it's the path that we're on. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, China uh, seems to be wanting to embrace at least some of that as well, um, probably in a bit of a different direction, more state well, we'll dominated see. than ours. <laughs> we'll but I guess, yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens, right? Because like this was, this was one of the points we, we were reflecting on as we were editing the article and some of that made it in. The striking thing about it is how similar the trajectory of China is even like, you know, over the last 10 years, but also just since the seventies, uh, to the West and, you know, speaking to the, the last 10 years, what you have in both cases is, um, this commercially derived internet technology being utilized by central political actors to increase the centralized control of the country. And, and this is happening in both the West and in China. So, you know, in, in China, it takes the form of this like digital governance initiatives by the party. It takes the form of trying to phase out the, the local initiative in favor of, you know, AI and big data and all this stuff, which I think, you know, I think they're actually just caught up in a bunch of buzzwords. I, I think they're caught up in a bunch of buzzwords there. I think that's, there's something silly about what, about that approach now maybe i you know i'm i'm not looking at this that closely they might they might have some wisdom that i'm not aware of and they're just using the buzzwords to to market it but anyways the, the sort of that buzzword point it has that feel yeah to it. i mean it, you read it and it's seen it it these write-ups about xi jinping's thoughts on technology and governance and so on and it it reads like a program from davos or something right uh it you know or or something you'd get on from like a smart city startup somewhere right you you have uh right some bunch these, of hype. yeah i mean you literally you know you have plans for you know consolidate rural communities into kind of smart villages using internet of things and and integrated systems and etc 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 i mean we've right, all seen right, this right. stuff before um and you know that that weird mix of tech marketing speak and government policy. Uh, it's like the first thing that jumps out at you. And, you know, you kind of maybe some of it will be a scam. Uh, maybe some of it will be real. But it's the fact that these things are so seamlessly integrating in, in a, you know, China and the West in two completely different political cultures, governing contexts. That shows me that there is actually a convergence going on here that's at a more fundamental level somehow than the the sort of top layers of ideology are revealing to us yeah so that, that's the thing right so china you know they do all that stuff they they fly all those buzzwords around but but i mean their their supposed reasons for doing it are 
you know, first of all, obviously just modernizing the, the country and modernizing their governance methods. Now, what modernization often means in practice is convergence with the West, but they, you know, they also have these goals like dealing with the corruption, which, you know, from what I understand is a very real problem for them. And there's other, other things like that, you know, presumably uh, the Uyghur situation and other kind of political demographic control things that they feel threatened by. Um, they want to get a handle on those. They're going to use all the latest technologies to do that. That's, that's what's going on here, I think. Um, so that's in China. But then, you know, the same set of techniques wielded in the West to control disinformation, to put down populist revolts, to, you know, just sell more ads or whatever. And, and like, it's all marketed on, uh, on a lot of this, you know, again, more, more hype and buzzwords, um, and especially when you talk to uh, the the sort of NGO class involved in this stuff in the West, it's it's like it it sounds sort of like that party speak. It's that buzzword laden stuff. You know, we have to control disinformation by by blah blah blah. Like, yeah, I mean, the interesting thing there is again, it's like for some reason the central authorities are feeling threatened, or maybe they're just feeling empowered by new technologies of control. Um, specifically centralized control. And and so you really get the sense that, first of all, China is actually just, you know, for all, for all, this is another point we made, for all the bluster about China and the West actually wanting to go in different directions. You know, the West has this concept of freedom and China has this concept of not not falling into the Western chaos. And they've, they've got their propaganda about how they're very distinct. The actual you know, determining factors of what's going on. And even the years, even the years where these things are happening line up quite closely, you know, like this 1970s, suddenly there's this, there's this sort of decentralization, uh, deregulation, but also atomization kind of shift on both sides. You have the neoliberal turn in the West, you have Deng Xiaoping's um, reforms in the, in the late 70s and 80s in in china and then 2010s you know xi comes in with starts starts recentralizing things under the party well in the west you know around and and that's you know i think that's 2012 actually and then and then a lot of people you look at these graphs of like well when did all this new terminology that's that's associated with the culture war and with the the political centralizations that are happening in the west uh, when did all that get introduced? Oh, look, you know, there's this big uptick. You look at the New York Times word usage, right? 2012, boom, this stuff comes into existence. And and so it's like the the years even line up, which, which suggests that there is both a lot of convergence happening between, you know, the fundamental, the fundamental forces shaping the two countries. Uh, or, or the two powers, really. I mean, because we're talking not just about the U.S., but but the West more broadly. Um, there's there's a lot of convergence on the fundamental forces, and, and maybe maybe the people kind of writing the marketing copy aren't quite as in control as you might think. And and actually, what's going on is more like the the structural consequence of a certain way of organizing information. So we've organized information in a certain way on the back of sort of the monopoly. Uh, e-commerce, social media era of the internet. This is this is just the way things turned out in technology. It's the way things turned out in record keeping. 
um, in just how we communicate with each other and the, the, the intervention points that have come to exist as a result of that. And, and the, you know, that very naturally suggests uh, a number of, uh, a, a number of facilities to the government or the de facto government for manipulating the the public situation and you know when it's done well we can call it governance um but it 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 it, it creates a bunch of these affordances and it also it also structures our thinking as a society it structures our organizing as a society and so the the upshot of that is that you know maybe what we have here is is uh, this surveillance individualism thing is maybe the the will of the technology as we've organized it so far. And that's an interesting thought. It's not about ideology necessarily. It's not about um, governing intention. It's about how did you actually organize your record keeping? And so that's that's very significant and interesting. But then the other thing is just I, I uh, this is a smaller point, but I, I really want to focus on that that kind of record keeping technological determinism aspect to this but you know we see again that that china is um very much still taking its clues from the west even if they're saying they're not and trying not to they're they're looking at the west and they're saying what's fashionable you know ai big data you know marketing i mean all this stuff of course they apply themselves because it's useful but but they they are they are in some sense following the West or maybe the West is following yeah them I mean or... everyone even Russia even Russia's in on the AI game right so there, there's this there's this way in which everyone's already committed and gotten on board that this is the method. It's interesting, like you know, AI means many different things. I think in this case, it means it means big statistics on big data, right? And uh, of course, the the etymology of the word statistics is informative, right? It's like the the kind of number crunching on big data that you want to do as a state statistics statistics um yeah so i i wanted to explore this that that was a very long-winded introduction but i wanted to explore this concept of surveillance individualism as the outgrowth of the way we've organized our technology as some and, and as almost a common struggle between china and the west that we that we're both going to deal with the negative consequences of that and you know, the positive affordances, of course, as well. But that's the world we've built for ourselves that is shared across the world. We're not going in different in all that different directions because we're both contending with this very fundamental structural shift that's happened with the Internet. I do think um, the way that this uh, gets implemented and the reasons why it looks attractive you do start to have to address the psychology, the consciousness of the political culture. And I want to talk about chaos for a minute here. Um, in the the kind of earlier period, you mentioned there are wolves. So, you know, in the U.S., you have a lot of ways that, you know, citizens, the broad mass of the population uh, can actually participate politically, exercise agency, not by some magical, you know, wave of the people or something, but because there's lots of institutions across American society that actually do organize people. You know, sometimes it's local elites, sometimes it's union bosses, sometimes it's churches, sometimes it's cultural groups uh, or, you know, these these rotary sort of organizations. 
but there there are basically lots of people organizing on a localized level political leadership and kind of you know mobilizing people locally for various t different kinds of causes and sometimes it's very mundane day you know day-to-day -day politics stuff and sometimes it ends up being a more consequential right like there's a strike or something in in a society like that where the average person becomes kind of inculcated into a culture where they can actually sometimes exercise agency that's a culture that has to be comfortable with a certain degree of chaos and you can think about it biologically to a degree right a, an organism that can endure uh you know a higher degree of chaos you know with the cold weather uh it it can go through the cold weather and be fine it can get sick and get healthy again that's a healthy organism and an organism that can't endure those things is by definition a weak organism and so in and in china you know you had a similar culture like that as we you know we talked about with the party cadres and what seems to have happened over the last few decades is that a we don't have that kind of high degree of participation anymore but also the political culture uh the you know the the kind of elite political culture has become increasingly afraid of or averse to too much chaos in the thing i think that there's been a clear aversion to uncontrolled action especially from the outside and why is scientific management such an attractive frame of doing governance i think in part it's because you don't need to involve people too much right i'm you know we've had riots every so often but uh they they've kind of always strengthened in the end you know how aggressive the kind of management apparatus uh apparently has to become and so that to me implies that there is actually a way in which the turn to management as opposed to you know political leadership is based on a kind of fear of what happens when there's too much chaos in, in the system and that implies to me that there is a strong sense of weakness underpinning the thing and if if true here if we're seeing convergence then maybe this is now true of china in some sense as well and that obviously would put a lie to a lot of what you know the kind of bluster and rhetoric that we get from beijing and from xi's leadership uh that you know there actually is a strong sense of weakness maybe they know more about the real weaknesses in the chinese uh structure and economy and system than than we do even over here but that you know the fact that the two great powers in the world right now are both apparently consumed by a sense of their own weakness uh you know whether accurate or not that should probably worry us deeply I th I think the Chinese weakness is real, you know, we we do see these things like the debt crisis and the the uh, you know, various things they're afraid of with terrorism and and the you know, they've got the CIA up their nose all the time, though they mostly dealt with that a while ago and they killed all the agents. They are they do have a lot of vulnerabilities. Um some of those things are fake. I mean, a lot of people I I think overrate that stuff. They say you know, China has this demographic cliff. It's it's going to be a disaster for them. And it's like, well, I think that problem is actually worse in the West, from what I understand. 
And this this is a little bit of a controversial take because it's not it's not directly visible in the bulk statistics, but I think if you look at segmented statistics, you know, especially looking at the middle class uh, and especially within marriages, you see very brutal um, fertility numbers, for example, on on the demographic stuff, worse than Japan. And, and, you know, people are always like, oh, you know, Japan is a dying society, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, well, their, their married fertility is higher than, uh, than America's. So let's, let's not be too hasty there. Um, the, so of course the, the difference is made up by unmarried people, which is to say, you know, single mothers and, and so on. And, uh, that gives you a clue as to what's going on there, that, that it's not the productive middle of society that is thriving. Um, yeah, anyway, so that's a digression. I think, I think a lot of the Chinese weaknesses are very real, but also overrated and in in fact shared by the West. Um, but yeah, so, so you have, you, you laid out a couple of these forces that I think are, are important. So you have, is the organism threatened by something? If they're threatened, they're going to, you know, reallocate their dynamic complexity budget towards dealing with the threat rather than experimentation and play which is essentially what what you need to do as a healthy organism you know you want this this like dynamic spirit of play and expansion and and you know you're running around your domain figuring out what you can do um exploring finding finding new sources of of power um and so you're going to redirect away from that towards dealing with the acute threat so that's one thing and there may be these acute threats that that China feels they're facing, you know, maybe from corruption, maybe from some of these big economic precarities, or maybe from these demographic issues. Um, in the West, I think we we have these these specific threats like the populist wave and and you know whatever so called disinformation is, which is to say like people talking to each other outside of established channels. And so that that's that's like the first force, and I think that could be a very rational thing to respond to. The second one is you brought up weakness. So weakness, you know, you can have health and you can have weakness. And um, health is where you're able to absorb a lot of dynamic complexity. You're able to put forth a lot of, you're able to, to yeah, put forth a lot of power or a lot of life force to your problems. And, and you don't have a lot of vulnerabilities. And so these things, they obviously go together. You know, an external threat can make you unhealthy or it can uh, take advantage of your unhealth and, and, and thus become worse. So, but, but they, are, they are separate forces. And I think, I think, you know, I can't speak for China. You know, I imagine it's just on general, my general observation is that all the, all the problems that, that, that China has, the West also has. And seems to me now that also things are going the other way in a way that that a lot of the problems the west has china also has and so you know my bet would be they also have this problem but but we have perhaps not as bad because their governance culture is younger but we in the west certainly have a very much declining governance culture and i think everyone knows this uh, it's been talked about you know we've talked about this since the beginning of palladium and i think uh, other people have started really talking about it a lot uh, since then. We have a declining governance culture and and not just sort of generally declining in the way that was diagnosable in the late 19th century, but but also sort of acute decline of of 
you know, they can't find anyone other than than 80 year old Joe Biden to to lead the country. And uh, the we we have very much a sense that that there's not kind of new dynamic vitality coming from the top. Rather, we have this like desperate hanging on by people who have no successors. And so that that obviously is a source of weakness. Right. Which which I just want to say we may well see reflected in the Chinese system now. I'm, you know, I'm I'm personally very uh, interested in seeing, you you know, people don't follow this so closely, but the Chinese regime actually had a very, you know, a a fairly segmented way of doing generational succession, um, you know, between generations of leadership. uh, And there, there was kind of a rotation that went on there. Now, I mean, some, you know, uh, some some were stronger and some were weaker. Uh, Hu Jintao, um, as as Dylan points out in his piece, uh, you know, never really seemed to gain the kind of you know per- threshold of personal power that that someone like Deng or or Jiang Zemin or now she have. But the the succession did occur. Um, she obviously seems like he's intending on sticking around for a, a pretty long time, um, which might be good in in the sense of showing that uh he has personal control over the thing but what will it do for that generational succession that's going to be this pretty open question and i don't know if they have a plan for it yeah and in both cases in the western china it's not just uh the succession problem uh you know succession problem obviously is huge but but also what are the fundamental values of the elite and and i think this comes back to our point about this this record keeping you know what's the structural record keeping angle the the thing the way people track status and the way people track success and the way people organize the pursuit of those things is is we use sort of the financial liberal uh, capitalism and consumerism model right so it's like you make a bunch of money for yourself the money is is for yourself, you know, and and we've we've come to articulate money in terms of personal benefit, um, which of course then you you uh, act out on the market by by consuming goods, and um, and this you know produces a certain culture among the elite, very very self oriented, very financially oriented, very indeterminate in the sense that they just want this money optionality that can be spent on goods. And then, and then you know, you you articulate your success in terms of goods, um, you know, material goods, and and so I I think that is deeply shaping the kinds of ambition that our governments have, and this is the problem in in the West. It's a problem in China. Um, so these are the sources of of weakness. You know, you've got this liberalism, fun, sort of fundamental structural liberalism, and then you have these. Um, succession problems but i think i think there's also you can have a new capability or a new option present itself to you in a way that you know in the ideal rational model a new option never is never bad for you but i think no one's ever ideally rational rather it's like you know you're a dynamic system that has a bunch of forces internally that are contained by the current shape of, of your existence and a new option 
you know, if if you are more towards the rational ideal, a new option is just a good thing. It's well, now we can apply this to our problems. Um, and and if you're less towards the rational ideal, the new option can actually just <laughs> wreck. Uh, can just wreck you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we're talking rational in a in a very kind of top level sense, right? Because the rational decision might even be that you do not use this option because. Uh, you know, something will slip out. Y- yeah, well, th- that's the implication, right? It's so, so like, you know, let's think of of the old fire water problem, right? Like the white man shows up with this alcohol stuff that you've never seen before, and your culture is like not prepared to deal with that, and you get flattened by it. In some cases, I mean, it's it's totally tragic that 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 kind of thing can happen but like this this how it's not just that right it's like all over the place you, Opi- with, in, you know, in china it was opium yeah it's like like would you let the devil give you a cookie right and and like you know sometimes would you let the devil present options to you it's like no actually you would not let the devil present options to you because options are not always a good thing not all optionality is good and and sort of that that's my fear with this thing like uh, that's sort of a preface to the the thing that's happened with the internet is we've suddenly got this new capability, which is for this big data sort of automated, uh, centralized population control and and marketing system. So, you know, we we suddenly have the ability to centralize all public discourse onto these platforms that can be moderated in a fine-grained way. You know, you can decide that this person and this message does not belong here and you can de-emphasize them in the algorithms and kick them off uh you can decide that you want to track everyone's individual personalities and interests and market product to them and or uh you know pick them out for further surveillance um you can do all kinds of stuff on the back of this digital technology that we've built and some of it i mean some of it i think we've we've celebrated before Usually, uh, we have faith in, you know, the human spirit to be eventually rational, to figure out how to apply its capabilities in front of us uh, productively. And yeah, there will be downsides, but generally there will be productive application as well, or or mostly. And, um, you know, that's, that's what we are seeing happening i think with this internet stuff but but the key thing is it's brought in this enormous set of new capabilities and some of that and and that's going to lead to a structural change in how we how we live our lives um and that and that also of course has led to a change in in how we do governance and so that that just this can go simply to explain why this thing is happening right now in a unified way it might not even be due to the unhealth or due to the the any external threat it's it's a response to new options right we we have now suddenly this option of you know fourth industrial revolution digital governance what we've called surveillance individualism um and and that's not an option in theory you know in the sense that like the technology could theoretically support this it's an option in being it's it's something that we have built to market product to people and to to moderate social media discourse. And and now the question is just, is it going to be applied to the problem of governance? And the answer is yes, probably. And here's what that looks like. In this case, um, the kind of options that we're either overlooking 
or trying very hard to leave behind seem to be the ones that rely on being able to mobilize you know parts of the population like having having those scripts permeate through the population where uh you know in china it's the party cadres and in america you know these these things were a little less uh, organized they were a little more open in in various ways but you know in, in terms of the options here the one that i see this move as actually trying to leave behind intentionally um is this this one where you have you know the the and it's the remnants of it right because as we we've, we've been saying this whole time there has already been this this atomization that's occurred this uh you know th- th- this kind of digital governance thing is coming in at the tail end of everything it's taking a society that has already become atomized and individualized you know and in in the west it's because the these kind of mid-level institutions have broadly hollowed out in a lot of ways and in china it's because people urbanized right Pe- people actually got um uprooted uh voluntarily in many ways but the the effect is still there yeah it's the old they left their villages yeah they left the village they left the kind of you know stable long-term job in in a state-owned enterprise um you know they they left kind of the household system and they moved on mass to cities and they they are you know they were no longer part of these very fixed institutions that could kind of organize people in various ways they they are no longer in companies that basically define their political role as well so we have this dislocation that's occurred and what do you get you know what do you get when an atomized population kind of has these spurts of agency and organization so you 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 get you know rather than this kind of organized political mobilization where uh you know m- maybe there's some problem and uh a, a union goes on strike or you know maybe the the churches kind of you know bring people together and they present demands or something th- th- this kind of it is a political chaos but it's one that the the society is is explicitly set up to channel and handle right um instead you get radicalization and you get maybe mob violence right uh and that is something that obviously any state fears pretty deeply well i think i think like one of the things they have the these these analysts that i think are largely cynical and and largely lying but i think one of the things they've gotten right in the west about what's going on with the radicalization is it is a structural feature of of the the way social media and and so on works that like people are going to be more radicalized i mean now the reasons in my analysis might be a little different than theirs i think i think that one of the major reasons is that people are now able to see things that they were not otherwise able to see and 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 by that i mean not that you know they're presented with some horrible propaganda but but you know that happens too but but i mean like literally the facts are much more available to them and the facts are not as friendly to the regime as they like to think or like they like to pretend i think they understand that that you know you need information control to maintain uh you know make sure people don't take the wrong interpretations i think is is how it's often put but basically there's there's a lot of facts out there that are inconvenient um so that's the first line of, of radicalization from from the internet social media 
The next one is, of course, it makes it much easier to do these, to organize propaganda and, and, and like test things out in a very dynamic way. You have like, you know, instead of, instead of a, a small back room with 12 propagandists kind of sitting around a whiteboard thinking about how to, how to market some product, you have, you have hundreds or thousands of, of participants in a community constantly trying to come up with new arguments for whatever their latest cult thing is and, and push it on other people and recruit other people. There's this, the, like, you know, people, people say the genius of the Ottoman empire was like the surveillance culture, the, the intelligence culture permeated through the population. Well, the genius of the American culture is that the, the propaganda culture and the evangelism permeates through the population. Everyone has an instinct for coming up with these these memes and spreading these memes and and people are highly sensitive to deviation from those memes yeah as and, well. and 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 highly sensitive to opportunities to convert people right so it's like this this surveillance kind of or this propaganda culture permeates throughout the population and now it's like massively empowered with social media so you can you just get much more production of this stuff and um you know so that of course creates more radicalization because ideological marketing is of course uh, synonymous with radicalization um or at least they 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 come very tightly packaged together and and then um yeah and and then that that veers into not just the sort of populist expression of it but but also the organized expression right you have these the various actors uh some foreign some domestic organized actors with you know big paid staff putting out certain messages on the internet in a uh sort of astroturf manner um you know you have people sitting in these in these computing farms kind of like making comments on social media through hundreds of bots trying to like put out the whatever their message is um and so all these things mean that that you know discourse just becomes a lot more radical under a social media regime and i mean the interesting thing is it also just becomes a lot more centralized like you would think oh it's more decentralized there's more people they can talk to each other it's like n to n rather than one to m right um but i i think it actually becomes more centralized in the sense that that conversation becomes more affordable it's like it's affordances are it much easier it's much easier to get into it and much easier to be influenced by it and much easier to participate in it and thus everyone is part and it's very scalable so it's very easy for everyone to end up participating in the same discussion yeah well and everyone is talking to one person usually right like there, <laughs> right, there's right. like the one main there's node some scapegoat of the world, and it's yeah. Yeah, well it's, it's it's either the scapegoat or or it's the rock star right or it's uh you know it's elon or it's the movie star, but the, you know, there, there's actually, I don't think there's actually that much people talking to each other in that sense. I mean, yeah, it obviously that's happens yeah. and that's how memes, I mean, memes or, spread or that we, way. we talk to each other about, about the other guy, right? Well, exa exactly, right. It's, 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 it's response, right? You're, you're responding to the meme or the, the news story or, or whatever it is like the, we 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 kind of all become these channels through which a particular narrative or a particular person even reproduces their their digital print uh onto you know the population we reproduce it onto each other and we receive it again 
it's not even them themselves, right? It's some some digital right. Uh, it's a you know, facade, a, exactly. Yeah. And we don't we you know we, we do it in with varying degrees of of consciousness, right? Like sometimes it's very passive. Sometimes it's pretty active. You know, in political um, in political narrative fights or whatever, these things are usually actually you know they're still propagandistic, but people become I think very willing and active participants in the process. I generally think that a society where you do have all of that, you know, the the narrative generation and the the kind of the, the agency to action, when that becomes highly centralized in a society, you do end up with this management relationship with governance. And what you what you lose out on then obviously is um, the the potential you know, that that could have been achieved if people had been inculcated toward agency rather than being managed. There's lots of people who who can, in fact, be uh, properly cultivated towards a kind of higher level of agency and organization and action. And, you know, I would even say to a degree, um, you know, the, these kind of social permissions can get people who can think somewhat independently to do so, especially when the circumstances, like with Zhao Yulu and his various comrades, forces you to do that. But if you have a political culture where that is stripped from consciousness, you are going to lose out on that stuff. And I generally think for us, for our society, we would be in a healthier state if we could actually endure uh, and benefit from having people overall trying to figure out how to exercise their agency in pro-social ways, in ways that benefit society. Is there more chaos in a society like that? Maybe there is, but maybe a healthy organism is one that can direct and benefit from that chaos in good ways, rather than one that kind of socially manages it out of existence. Uh, and and just ends up with this kind of you know well functioning uh, feedback mechanism. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about chaos, I mean, it's not like this centralized system is getting rid of chaos, right? It's just becoming centralized chaos instead of decentralized. And the chaos, chaos. outbursts become more <laughs> hardcore, right? The thing about this centralization stuff. So I, I just want to like summarize the situation and and some reflections on how we might approach, you know. If we wanted to take it a different direction, for example, as a society. Um, so, you know, I've just given this argument for why social media as as we currently have it is centralizing. It, it It's somewhat it makes it really easy for everyone to get in on the same discussion and makes it really easy for for to scale up these these uh, and generate a lot of um work behind these grassroots or like semi-grassroots kind of astroturf um propaganda campaigns and so so things become centralized just because it's this you know this fluid sea on which you can you can easily uh communicate with anybody and, and everyone's talking about the same things um so the next thing of course is the the internet monopoly thing so the way our internet has ended up organized is that, you know, because it's so difficult to operate as a, as an individual on the internet, you, you kind of defer all your 
all your interneting to these big server companies like Facebook and Twitter and Google who they run they run servers that that um, organize your life and you know and it's not just it's not just because they have better economic leverage to do that it's also these network effects and and the way they're able to build moats around themselves and and you know just the the whole way that we've conceived of um the internet as these competing services that that want to kind of get more engagement and and have more things going on within themselves and fewer things going on outside of themselves and that structural model for how we've built up the internet i mean there's a certain inevitability to it 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 you know maybe not inevitability but it's it's natural in a way to to have internet monopolies they you know monopoly is is the natural outcome when you have very low marginal cost and very high development cost and uh you know things very scalable things are very very networkable you you very rapidly get these uh you get monopolies and then the other thing is is just like the way these things you know and, and then with competition of course you get you get a handful of monopolies but uh or in in different areas and and they're always trying to compete but it's it's become quite stagnant but it does seem natural in the, in some sense and then you have of course the the way these things are organized as as uh, profit oriented companies rather than you know as as products of any kind of national lab or or anything like that you could imagine things being done differently if if they were viewed as as problems of national infrastructure rather than as problems of commerce um you know like the, the internet's the interstate system was not built by um as as a as a commerce you know some monopoly that that decides to build a bunch of roads um the railways were built that way but but very rapidly became kind of regulated into into utilities um or perhaps not so rapidly for the people who <laughs> lived through those early years but just in the overall lifetime of the system so far but um and then and then you have the internet obviously was built as national infrastructure that that people built commerce on top of same way they built commerce on top of the interstate system but um you know you could imagine further further expressions of this uh, you know the web was built not as quite national infrastructure but academic infrastructure and it, like what well, what if what would social media look like if it was built as that kind of infrastructure um that's an interesting question but 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 what that does is it, i'm just trying to raise the possibility of that there are different ways of doing this and the way that we did it leads to the way that we the thing that we got and so that and maybe that that opens up this question of okay well how do we actually how could things be done differently thanks for listening we've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast the second half is available on our patreon you can sign up at palladiummag.com/subscribe it usually gets better in the second half so you don't want to miss it This project wouldn't be viable without your support, so we hope to see you soon.